This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. MediaWorks moved to cut off its TV arm last week has swung the spotlight onto the government's response. This week, politicians sent out some distinctly mixed messages, ranging from good riddance to promises of help, thoughts and prayers, but mainly wait and see. We also find out why a bit of our TV history that's been paid for by the public is now parked behind a paywall, while political stuff from the vaults screens for free on a channel hardly anybody watches. The reporters happily take up their self-laid bait. Rowling's opinions of the government's industrial record are headlined in the next morning's papers. But first, TVNZ pulled out all the stops to cover the big blaze on its doorstep in Auckland this week, but news shows later were scaled back or even scrapped. So can our national TV broadcaster actually broadcast from anywhere other than Auckland in an emergency? The flames were probably, and it's hard to tell from where I am, but maybe 80 metres wide. Um, it's been burning now for probably close to a quarter of an hour. I can see a lone firefighter on the roof of the building, uh, but I can't see any efforts yet being taken to, to get the fire under control. That was Auckland Mayor Phil Goff on News Talk ZB at 1.30 last Tuesday afternoon, speaking from the Auckland Council Tower and describing a key asset in his CBD going up in smoke live on air. And while he was looking down on it from above, for those at TVNZ on Hobson Street, it was just over the fence. On TVNZ One News that night, Wendy Petrie told viewers they could smell the smoke inside at their place. As you can see, low on the horizon, just to the right-hand side of Sky Tower, the smoke billowing from the Sky City Convention Centre carried on that westerly across towards the east of central Auckland. And the smoke also being smelt inside our TVNZ building too. Now, being so close gave TVNZ a head start covering this emergency, but paradox. It also made that more difficult because they were right in the emergency zone that was being cordoned off and cut off. And it wasn't only a story about a big blaze downtown and bad weather conditions. There was also the routine news like road closures and public transport disruption that had to be up to date. And then the backstory of the convention centre's troubled track record. And then the potential economic impact of the project's latest setback were all part of the mix as well. The following morning, there was a setback for TVNZ News itself, an evacuation ordered just before the three-hour news show Breakfast. Early risers switching on for that at 6am on TVNZ1 saw a feed of the BBC World News Channel instead. This is a critical summit that's now taking place here in Sochi. And after decamping first to the car park, TVNZ got breakfast on air by 6.15am with the hosts John Campbell and Matt McLean out on the streets along with reporters, producers and camera crews while hosts Jenny Mae Clarkson and Hayley Holt scrambled to a temporary studio. It is Wednesday the 23rd of October. Kia ora. it is great to have you with us, Morena. This is breakfast. We have been evacuated from the TVN, uh, TVNZ studios this morning as fire continues to rage at the site of the International Convention. Now, bearing all that in mind, breakfast produced some pretty vivid and compelling coverage of the still-burning blaze that had paralysed the central city, and they did it in pretty trying conditions, especially outdoors. Um, but uh, to be honest, I'd much rather be where you are right now. It is absolutely freezing in Auckland this morning. We've had hail, we've had rain, these really strong winds. There's actually about of a, an Arctic cold front sweeping across parts of the country. But I thought, um, you know, it's obviously very focused on Auckland this morning, and rightly so. It's quite a massive event that's happening here this morning. But people like to know what's uh, going on around the country with their weather, so we'll try and uh, deliver the weather to you. We just unfortunately don't have access to graphics. So imagine there's a massive <laughs> right here. Right here. <laughs> 
That was breakfast weather guy Matt McLean doing the weather out in the street in a downpour but with a backdrop of smoke and flames from the fire and just a phone for the details of the weather. And at 9am, John Campbell wrapped up a tough day outside the office back on Hobson Street looking up at cascades of water pouring down the sides of the Sky City Convention Centre. If we look down Hobson Street, down towards TVNZ, which is the next building down, so you can see why we've been evacuated, it is just thick with grey, grey smoke. And if we look up at the hose, you can actually see uh, really waterfalls coming down the side of the building. Incredible amounts of water being pumped in and flooded out. That fire Compelling stuff. Now, live blogs on major news websites were good too, with news you can use for people in Auckland, but there was the odd bum note on air. For example, News Talk ZB's news bulletins carried compelling eyewitness accounts, but they jarred with this promo for premium content subscriptions for the New Zealand Herald. Andrew McMartin has an elevated view. He says it's going to be a tough one for firefighters to deal with. It must be about 15, 20 metres up in the air where they need to get water to, so it will be difficult from that respect as well. I mean, just a huge amount of um, smoke damage to this building as well. Slurring and soiling himself, liquor store punished for serving drunk man. You can see more at NZ Herald Premium. Now back to Andrew Dickens. Not sure how many premium subscriptions the Herald would have secured with that promise of more about someone soiling themselves in a bottle store on a day of genuine emergency in Auckland. And before the TVNZ breakfast show got up and running after six on Tuesday, those watching the AM show on three or listening to it on the Magic Talk station heard the host Ryan Bridge speculating like this about what and who might have caused the catastrophe. Nothing has been confirmed. We don't know if it's true or not. There's just reports out there in the media that there was a, a bloke on top of the roof working yesterday, went for a smoko and left his blowtorch on. And perhaps there's some suggestion that perhaps that's what started the fire. Nothing's been confirmed. Don't know if it's true or not. If it is, I feel for this guy. Fletcher Building's chief executive had told reporters earlier that the fire started where blowtorches were being used up on the roof and the Herald had reported online the fire was ignited by a blowtorch after a worker went on a smoko break. But the Herald didn't cite a source and officials, including the senior fire officer in charge, Fire and Emergencies Ron Devlin, repeatedly said he could not confirm this. Now on the AM show, co-host Amanda Gillies then added to the second-hand information... We were talking to one of uh, the reporter producers upstairs and her husband works with him and he said, you can turn it off, but it's still incredibly hot. So it may have just, he may have legitimately turned it off and it just has triggered something in the heat. Now, if the news staff did have a source with credible information on how the fire might have started, well, they should have got that on the record rather than just adding reheated anecdotes out loud on national TV. Meanwhile, co-host Mark Richardson was also at the table ready with his two cents. In a way, that's a better fire starter than what burnt down. What was it in, in Paris? The, oh, Notre Dame. Notre oh, the Dame. cigarette, wasn't it? Cigarette butts yeah. burnt that down, didn't they? Well, that's Paris for you, isn't it? Yeah. yeah but you yes, those Parisians forever tossing away their gallois and doors and burning significant buildings to the ground. AM host Ryan Bridge was on safer ground, though, with this heartfelt, down-the-lens shout-out to the firefighters. They're pretty poorly paid for the work they do, especially those based in Auckland, where living costs are high. Newbies can start on as little as 40-something thousand per year. Would that be enough to get you into a burning building, do you think? And let's not mention the PTSD and the suicide rates. They've gone up as they battle more and more medical call-outs. Having said all that, I just wanted to take the opportunity this morning to say... 
Thank you. And coincidentally, the PTSD, the elevated cancer risks, the increased workload had all been tackled on TVNZ's Current Affairs show Sunday by reporter Mark Kreisel last weekend on the last remaining local show of its type on New Zealand TV these days. If you had your time over again, would you still be a firefighter? 32 years gone, Mark. Um, yeah, I'd put my hand back up again, yeah, for sure. Despite the cancer? Yep. Despite the stresses of the job? Yep, I'd be, uh, I'd do it all again. I love the job. <laughs> Hundreds of thousands of people who saw that in prime time last Sunday on TBNZ1 would have had that in mind when they saw the images and heard the news from Auckland last Tuesday. It was a timely reminder of the impact that free-to-air TV can still have at a time when many pundits have declared the medium in terminal decline. But while TVNZ showed this past week what a proper professional TV news operation can do in an emergency, TVNZ pulled back news shows later on the Wednesday. The midday news was shrunk to just five minutes, Takarari was dropped altogether for the afternoon, and likewise, one news tonight, which didn't air at 10.30pm. And it's not the first time in Auckland that a fire has forced TVNZ news off the air. In January 2018, a fire in a control room inside TVNZ's HQ meant that the 6pm news didn't screen. At the time, stuff asked TVNZ why the national broadcaster couldn't broadcast it from elsewhere. And TVNZ said that the network does have the capacity to broadcast live from elsewhere in Auckland in case of an emergency, but 30 minutes wasn't enough time to organise that on the day. A former TVNZ employee at the time, who asked not to be named, told stuff that TVNZ had put all its eggs in one basket, Auckland, and TVNZ in Wellington used to have a studio staff and presenters available to front the news last minute if necessary, but not now. If Auckland fell over, they would pull it together in Wellington. But they basically got rid of all the people who ran the Wellington control room, so now they don't have the people there to cover their asses when Auckland falls over. But it's more than just arse covering at stake here. In the Civil Defence and Emergency Management legislation, RNZ and TVNZ are both classed as lifeline utilities, obliged to ensure they're able to function to the fullest possible extent, even though it may be at a reduced level, during and after an emergency. And a Memorandum of Understanding says both broadcasters are... Required to develop and maintain arrangements to ensure the effective and consistent broadcast of warnings and emergency information. Last week's big media story was broadcasting company MediaWorks putting its loss-making free-to-air TV channels 3, 3 Life and Bravo up for sale. And this has rumbled on into this week in a political way, but there have been no business developments to speak of. New Zealand media companies all have their own problems at the moment, and so far the MediaWorks offer has just been a footnote in the Australian media news stories about the buyouts and deals being done between big media players over there right now. So if there's no new owner found soon enough... Well, as we heard last week on Media Watch, on 3's 7pm show The Project last week, host Jesse Mulligan said this. It's not unrealistic or an exaggeration to say that the next move could be for MediaWorks to close down our entire station. Beyond the news and media industries, the end of MediaWorks TV channels, if that comes to pass, would be bad for our cultural and our public life, not to mention, of course, hundreds of professionals employed there and elsewhere as the ripples spread. 
Now, that scenario is a worry for our politicians, most of whom expressed concern and sympathy about this this past week, except for one who seemed to have utu on his mind last weekend. Another message for my friends in the media, it's all bad. <laughs> and it was announced yesterday, certain sections of them are going. <laughs> now, I'm sorry for some of them, because they deserve to stay. But for some of them, good riddance. Winston Peters was all smiles at last weekend's New Zealand First Party conference when he said good riddance to some of those at MediaWorks. That schadenfreude was stage-managed for the party faithful, who, as you heard there, seemed to have no sympathy either. But when News Hub political editor Tova O'Brien accused Winston Peters of making light of her company's plight, he wasn't having it. No, I'm not. Did you do that in your speech? How do you mean? You said that some people as good if they lost their jobs. Uh, well, that's a fact, yes. So you're making light of the situation? No, I'm not making light of the situation. All I'm saying is that when you are in the position of media works, maybe you should have had a better understanding of the economic environment in which you are operating. Now, that Trumpian response of fake news when challenged on something he evidently did say wasn't classy. So when Jacinda Ardern fronted up for her post-Cabinet press conference on Monday this past week, she didn't share her Deputy Prime Minister's opinion, though she wouldn't condemn it. Shortly after that, News Talk ZB's political editor Barry Soper was on the air to explain why one name at MediaWorks in particular loomed large in Winston Peters' apparent grudge. Former cricketer turned TV host Mark Richardson, a vocal supporter of the National Party and critic of Winston Peters. Of course, uh, Mark Richardson, uh, he likened Winston Peters just before the election in 2017 to pass on uh, the Good Morning on the uh, TVAM show, um, and um, so Winston decided he would sue him. In 2017, Winston Peters did indeed threaten to sue Mark Richardson for defamation when the MediaWorks man said that Mr Peters was a political predator who seeks out injuries like a political white blood cell or a form of political pus. Not nice. But MediaWorks isn't the only media outfit to rub Winston Peters up the wrong way over the years. But while all that is part of Winston Peters' political track record of friction with the Fourth Estate, his hostility now worries many in the media because he's a key member of a government whose media policy is under review right now and due to be revealed soon. And on News Talk ZB, Barry Soper insisted this was a significant work in progress. I was talking to some senior ministers today and the policy is being formulated behind the scenes on the public aspect of broadcasting in New Zealand and they're looking very seriously at um, turning uh, TV1 into a non-commercial uh, television network, mm-hmm. uh, TV2 with the uh, the ads and combining both TVNZ and Radio New Zealand, which, of course, is uh, publicly funded as well. And that's not forgetting Māori television. So that's very much in train. So many in the media now wonder whether Winston Peters and his party could derail that train. But herein lies a big irony. TVNZ1 being made non-commercial has been a policy of New Zealand Firsts for years, and it's also a demand cash-strapped MediaWorks has been making for years with no sign of success. Two hours later, on Monday, Winston Peters appeared on the Project Show on 3 and faced this question. Of course, another big talking point from the weekend were the comments that you made about the sale of our Channel 3. You said good riddance to some of us. Any regrets? Uh, uh, No, I didn't. No, I didn't say that. I said I was seriously sorry about that. And I'm sorry for all those people who were involved. Let's be very certain. Of the 500-plus, there's husbands, wives, there's mortgages, there's children. There's a very sad situation. 
I'm very much aware of that. And let me tell you right now, tonight, that we as a political party are not going to leave this scene and leave it like it is. If we can possibly help, we will. But what did that commitment to help actually mean? Sadly, the project then got sidetracked by more counter-sledging of Mark Richardson. I've, I've got a great out. deal of respect no, for Mark for Richardson as a broadcaster and for you as a politician. Do you reckon you could just choose to both be the grown-ups that you are? Winston Peters' claim that we're going to look after you was ignored, so he repeated it before Jesse Mulligan called time on the interview. And I'm saying again uh, to the project, it was a great programme you guys got, the lot of the fantastic uh, you know, broadcast and publication utilities there, and we're not going to walk away from it all. All I was saying to the odd person, when you attack someone, uh, you don't expect to get away with it, and mm. I have been attacked. Winston Peters, appreciate your time tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you. Very much. Officer uh, Tonu with us tonight. You've got a bit of a rugby connection with Winston Peters. Yes, well, he's a uh, play for the uh, parliamentary... But never mind the chit-chat about parliamentary rugby. What about that commitment Winston Peters had just made to helping MediaWorks in its hour of need? In his on-air editorial on the same show last week, Jesse Mulligan accused the government of standing by and opting out of MediaWorks' troubles. Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy has said he'll announce a new policy on broadcasting before the end of the year. Well, this week's news shows he's already waited too long. Four days later, here was one of the government's most senior members saying, we will help. But Jesse Mulligan and the project just left it there, with critical questions unanswered, such as, who's we, and what help exactly might be on the table. It was only the following morning when Jacinda Ardern gave her regular round of media interviews that the question of what Winston Peters had said there was probed again. On behalf of the government, that ultimately this is a commercial decision and I know that I don't need to tell all of you that. You'll, you'll know um, in, in great detail, of course, the operations of the company for which you're, you're working um, and it is ultimately a commercial decision. Uh, the, what we're working on is acknowledgement that actually journalism, um, public broadcasting is incredibly important now more than ever, particularly when the landscape you're operating in, uh, advertising revenue is, is actually flowing out of traditional sources into online services, for instance. We need to preserve public broadcasting. We need to make sure that we have a strong fourth estate, that we have good journalism. And so we're looking at ways to make sure we strengthen that. Jacinda Ardern on the AM show on 3 on Tuesday. And she went on to make the point that MediaWorks and TV3 already get significant financial support for content from the public purse via the government's broadcasting funding agency. For large projects, um, you know, TV3 has been recipient of over 21% of that funding. So, you know, actually through NZ On Air, there has been support for the content that's been on TV3. Um, but ultimately, this is a commercial decision. The thing that changed here... Um, was that the decision was made by the execs that they no longer wanted the profit that they made in radio to come over to TV. And that's their call. We, we, can't, uh, we can't dictate uh, how the company works. So it's their decision. So clearly this is now an issue that's being actively aired at the top table in the Beehive. 45 minutes later, Jacinda Ardern was on TVNZ's breakfast show where Hayley Holt was putting Winston Peters' words to the Prime Minister. Um, he has said, he's backtracked a little bit, and said that we as a political party are not going to leave this scene and leave it like it is. If we can possibly help, we will. Does he mean New Zealand First or the coalition government? Obviously, he, he's quite explicit there in talking about um, uh, New Zealand First. I'm happy to clarify the position of the government, though. We've, 
we've been very clear for some time now that we obviously New Zealand like the rest of the world is in an environment where advertising dollars are going to different places there's huge um, pressure on traditional forms of broadcasting and actually what we need to do is make sure New Zealanders can still access and see their stories their news have that we have strong journalism so that's why we're focused on public broadcasting making sure that we really boost that that's what we've been working on uh, what we've seen with media works though is a commercial decision uh, they ultimately have decided that they don't want the revenue that they're making from radio to subsidise what they're doing in TV. And that's their decision. Our decision is to make sure that we make sure public broadcasting is strong and we'll have more to say on that down the, down the track. Now for MediaWorks and other under pressure and up for sale news media outfits such as Stuff, the length of the track that Jacinda Ardern referred to there is critical. Time is running out for them along with the money and the owner's patience. They really need to know now what's coming from a government that so far kicked the can down the road as far as its plan for the media is concerned. Stories about new medical research can be confusing. One study says drinking coffee improves your memory. Another one says it causes memory loss. So who do you believe? Uh, to be fair, it's understandable because medical research is carried out by really clever people with advanced technical knowledge, and most of us don't have that knowledge. So how do you, a layperson, know whether a study is reliable or not? Well, Hassan Valley is an associate professor in public health at Melbourne's La Trobe University, and he's written a helpful article for the website Cyblogs on this very topic. That was Jesse Mulligan on his afternoon show on RNZ the week before last. And as he said there, it can be difficult for media consumers to know just how robust a piece of research being quoted is. Something like this, for example. Let's spend a couple of minutes talking about which oils are okay to eat. Can you give us a little list? Sure. Okay. So all animal fats are fine. Okay. Um, but if you don't want to eat animal products, that's fine too. There are... Um, vegetable products or, or non-animal products that you can consume. So anything, so fruit oils are fine too. So olive oil uh, is a fruit oil. Uh, so is coconut oil. So is palm kernel oil. So they're all fruit oils and they're, they're perfectly fine. The reason they're fine is that they have a fat profile which is very, very similar to animal fat. That was David Gillespie, the author of The Good Fat Guide, How to Add Healthy Fat to Your Diet, speaking to Jesse Mulligan last Monday. David Gillespie, a lawyer by training, has written a series of books on medical issues that have been criticised by health experts, something Jesse Mulligan acknowledged in his introduction. In 2013, David wrote a book about the health risks of certain oils, oils that are in almost all processed food. He says that research shows oils like canola and sunflower make you vulnerable to cancer. His strong stand against seed oil has gotten pushback from some, including the Australian Heart Foundation and other nutrition experts who urge a more holistic approach to eating, not focusing on one ingredient. But David says he feels compelled, compelled to share what he's learned. And Jesse Mulligan did go on to question some of Gillespie's claims. I think the most, um, I suppose, counterintuitive um, part of your 
theory is that vegetable oil, oil vegetable oils sounds pretty good, right? Vegetable vegetables are good for you. Yeah. We've just moved away from things like lard and and you know people feel like they're doing the right thing if they pick up say rice bran oil in the supermarket and you're telling us actually no, nah, it's actually worse for no. you. No, well, it's not that it's worse for you. It's it's very, very bad for you, and there is absolutely nothing wrong with animal fats. But surely it's not a matter of intuition. It's a question of the best available science, something Gillespie claims he's quoting. The evidence on this is from large-scale human trials. I just want to reiterate that. This is not guesswork. This is large-scale human trials that have proven that these things double the rate of cancer. The Good Fat Guide is an updated version of David Gillespie's 2013 Toxic Oil, a book described by Peter Clifton, a professor of health nutrition, and Bill Shrapnel of the Sydney University Nutrition Foundation, like this. The message is so over the top that it's hard to believe that anyone would take it seriously. Still, messiahs develop followers. The peer quoted Gillespie's conclusion to illustrate just how radical his claims are. If you do what I suggest, you'll be doing all the wrong things according to our health authorities. You'll be eating butter, drinking full-fat milk, chomping through bacon and eggs for breakfast and enjoying a meat pie for lunch. Clifton and Shrapnel, writing on the Conversation website, said Gillespie quoted scientific research selectively while ignoring studies that contradicted his conclusions altogether. They pointed out that Gillespie's work wasn't peer-reviewed and was poorly referenced, making it difficult to check many of the book's claims. And as Hassan Valley pointed out in his interview on RNZ's afternoon show, that peer review process is a crucial part of sorting out robust science from conjecture. Science goes through a process where it's peer-reviewed, and that's how we check the quality of the science. So when, it, when a scientist does some work, um, they, they write it up and they send it to a journal to be published. Now, that journal assesses the quality of the science by sending it to experts, um, and those experts decide whether it's good enough to, to get published and for the rest of the world to see or whether there's major flaws with it. David Gillespie's Good Fat Guide has barely featured in the Australian media, and that could be because the earlier edition was so roundly criticised by academics in the field. That's not to say the authors of popular books offering health advice shouldn't be interviewed in the media, but if their claims completely contradict the advice of health professionals, then a responsible approach would be to provide some real balance by including an interview with an acknowledged expert in the field. In his interview with Hassan Valley, Jesse Mulligan raised the issue of the media's role in spreading dodgy science like this. Is the media partly to blame here, Hassan? Yeah, look, I think I think they are. I mean, I have to sort of say that I actually don't... Um, it's very easy to, to completely blame the media, and I'm not in that camp. I actually think there's a lot of different things going on. But certainly, um, you know, the attraction for the media is to present the most, um, I guess, um, emotional and most scary aspect of a story because that is what gets people interested and at the end of the day um, you know the people in the media want to write interesting stories that get people to click on links or, or buy newspapers. The interview with David Gillespie definitely had people clicking. It was one of the most listened to interviews on the RNZ website this week and that's a worry because people listening to it or reading it really have no way of knowing how robust or otherwise the science being quoted is.
On Media Watch last weekend, we mentioned that a TV series about how modern New Zealand was built had just come to an end on Prime TV, Making New Zealand. For the early settlers and those who followed, this wild and isolated New Zealand was a world away from anything they knew. Yet somehow they laid the foundations for the nation we live in today. This series celebrates the vision, the skill, and sheer bloody-mindedness that made a country. And this show has been funded by you via the government's broadcasting funding agency, New Zealand On Air. The four hour-long episodes in Series 3, which finished last week, cost just under three-quarters of a million dollars. They covered tourism farming and manufacturing, and last Sunday's series finale was a look at the history of broadcasting in New Zealand. For almost 100 years, the radio and television networks of New Zealand have given us stories that have helped define who we are as a nation. This is the story of broadcasting. Now this was fascinating stuff, rich with archival footage from the distant and recent past alike, and with a bit of expert analysis and a word or two from the technical experts who explained that TV programmes going out nationwide was no easy thing back in the day. And I think an example is you could watch an episode of Coronation Street in black and white in Auckland and it'd be a different episode screening in Wellington. Although television was available in the main centres of New Zealand, not everyone had this luxury available to them. The signal coverage was quite limited and uh, not everybody had access to reasonable signal or even had a local translator system available. Well, such scarcity seems strange to us now with so much access to so much content via so much technology. And with that in mind, former New Zealand On Air Chief Executive Dr Ruth Harley, who's currently the agency's chair, had this final word in the programme. So... What I see and what I'm still absolutely passionate about is we have to have, we New Zealand have to have our stories, our content everywhere because that's the only way we're going to ensure that our children, our everybody, everybody has access to their stories, to their world, to their reality and to their imagination. And if you missed that programme, you can watch it online on the catch-up section of Prime TV's website. But when Media Watch went looking for Series 1 and Series 2 of Making New Zealand, both publicly funded from New Zealand On Air's Platinum Fund, they weren't there. You'll only find them on the on-demand service Neon, which is a subscription service operated by Prime's owner Sky TV. So in other words, publicly funded history programmes about the making of the nation are behind the paywall of the country's biggest pay TV company. So why is that? I asked New Zealand On Air's chair, Dr Ruth Harley, who featured in last Sunday's episode in the latest series, and New Zealand On Air chief executive, Jane Wrightson. It's the same with all funded material. The content belongs to the producer, and the producer will have negotiated rights with the platform, and those shows would have been on the on-demand series uh, service for a while and then gone off. However, we too became increasingly um, concerned about this. The, the, you know, producers generally wanted short windows so they could go and sell it to other people. Even overseas um, exactly. documentary. Exactly, all of that stuff. Right, so. We got increasingly concerned that the windows were too short. Um, and, of course, the, the, the rising cost of production was influencing our decision around this as well. So as part of the, the work we did around uh, re- restructuring the agency, we said we want um, a year's window for all our funded content on demand. Thank you very much. Um, many producers had some problems with this. Increasingly, producers 
um, started to understand our point of view. So series three of um, uh, Making New Zealand will be on the Prime On Demand site for a year. For which a is year. great. But, uh, I mean, and it's the same with all other kind of stuff, Colin. So what other shows made in the last 30 years can you access now? Not that many. Some. That's partly why we funded New Zealand On Screen, to make a showcase for at least what um, a, a record of what's been made. Um, and there are you know, many ideas for how that could be extended should funding become available. But this is all a, right, a fairly complicated business around rights negotiations. And some producers are happy to talk about um, ex, uh, extended use and some are not. Yeah, so coincidentally, Dr Harley, it's your words that actually end that programme uh, where you were saying, look, TV is increasingly on the internet now. We need to have our stories and New Zealand content everywhere. That's the only way everybody can have access to their stories and their reality. Ironic that a documentary in which you're saying that will be there just for a year. Well, I, I've got to, I, I see this slightly differently, really. I, I, yes, I think that, of course, we want stuff that's publicly funded to be publicly available. But it's also true that we're moving into far more of a pay universe than we've ever moved into. We need to be, our content needs to be everywhere. Um, so I see it as uh, a, a constant juggle and a negotiation to get the content out there as much as possible. If people are consuming the vast majority of, the, of their content on Netflix, why don't we want to be there? We do want to be there. But they won't be, of course, because along comes Disney and Amazon and all the rest of them. That'll be a very contested space. So I think we have to stay nimble and look for the opportunities for our content to get to New Zealanders wherever they are watching it. But That's right, and Prime, of course, will, will rescreen it free to wear, um, probably the entire series, I expect. Now they'll have a bunch of, you know, a dozen or so of them. New Zealand On Air Chief Executive Jane Wrightson and the current chair of New Zealand On Air, Dr Ruth Harley, who, as we heard there, featured in last Sunday's episode in the latest series of Making New Zealand, all about the history of New Zealand broadcasting. And that's available to view in the catch-up section of Prime TV's website for the next 12 months. Catch it while you can. And finally this week, while we're on the subject of broadcasting our history, what's possibly the least-watched channel that's available nationwide has broken new ground this week with archival footage on the air. Parliament TV kicked off a new programme called Looking Back, a 20-part series about New Zealand's parliamentary politics, which is fully funded by the Office of the Clerk. At a total cost of $37,850.50, or $1,892.52 per hour, it must be some of the cheapest national television ever aired in New Zealand. And that's not the commercial hour of 44 minutes or so. You get the full 60 minutes each hour on ad-free Parliament TV. So how has the Office of the Clerk managed to produce such bargain basement TV? Well, the programme lets the archival footage breathe with just minimal introductory voiceovers preceding them. For instance, episode one included the full party political election broadcasts from 1966, all nine minutes plus of each one, back to back. We're determined to honour our treaty obligations. You know, when they were the government, Labour pledged again and again that under them New Zealand would honour our obligations to our allies. Now they're pledged to Welsh on them. And we're entitled to ask, what sinister power and influence has changed Labour's minds and demanded that they dishonour their own pledges and to dishonour New Zealand in the eyes of the world? 
That was the then Prime Minister Keith Holyoke talking about ANZUS defence treaty obligations in his National Party broadcast in 1966 and not the treaty obligations that often feature in today's headlines. Now that episode also included this rare insight into the journalistic methods of the day. Desperate for a new news angle, one journalist has suggested in a note to Rowling that he accused the government of industrial anarchy at tonight's meeting. The charge, suggested the journalist, could relate to the government's handling of the clerical workers' union. Rowling obviously has nothing more newsworthy to fire at the audience, and the media. He takes up the cue and fires the suggested salvo. The reporters happily take up their self-laid bait. Rowling's opinions of the government's industrial record are headlined in the next morning's papers. That was TVNZ's programme Dateline Monday from way back in 1978. Now this week, Looking Back screened an eyewitness news show from 1981 all about how the media covered the election campaign that year on the road, including Barry Soper, who's still in the game today, as political editor of News Talk ZB, as we heard earlier. Weeks two and three for Barry Soper were spent off the road at his office in the Beehive. There was no alternative. We couldn't really afford it, I don't think. Working for a private enterprise organisation, the dollar matters. And to cover this election campaign, I had to canvas the... We've got ten commercial radio stations, and they've all had to contribute some money. For once, Barry Soper didn't mind missing the action. He had a distinct feeling there wasn't much. And this week, Looking Back also screened in full a famous TV encounter from 1981 on the show Newsmakers, in which presenter Ian Fraser, later to become TBNZ's chief executive, grilled the Minister of Police and Māori Affairs at the time, Ben Couch, at considerable length about what appeared to be his support for separate development in South Africa, but not apartheid. Where we've got armed camps on both sides, uh, hasn't changed their ideology but it's got a wall separating them. But the difference now, in I South believe... Africa seems to be that isolation has achieved something. No, when you're talking about New Ze- uh, South Africa being isolated, isolated from whom? Think of all the other countries that have been playing sport with the same country. Episodes of Looking Back screen on Parliament TV each sitting day at 11.30am and 12.30pm, and the office of the clerk tells us it will be on Parliament's website very soon. Now, this isn't the first time that Parliament TV has featured something other than the actual parliamentary proceedings. Last year, it screened a one-hour documentary called Introducing Parliament, and a spokesperson for the clerk's office told MediaWatch this week it plans more content on Parliament TV in the non-sitting hours as part of its strategy of Parliament engagement. Now, the uninterrupted stuff from the vaults might be a bit of an acquired taste, but it's certainly more compelling than the elevator music and the slates setting out when the next sitting day is or the next committee hearing is due to take place. So if you're keen, Parliament TV's on Freeview Channel 31 and Sky and Vodafone Channel 86, and it live streams on the website parliament.nz. Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team for this week, but we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.